Hi, this is Bianca. And this is Anna. Your hosts of Girl Talk Monday's podcast, where we discuss the world of fashion, self-confidence, and everything in between. In this new series, we interview inspiring women making a mark in their fields. Whether that be business leaders, CEOs, marketeers, or entrepreneurs, we want to share their success stories with you. So welcome to Girl Talk Mondays. Mondays. In this week's episode, we're joined by Namrata Kamdar, founder of Planair, a modern skincare brand with well-being at its core. With over 15 years experience in marketing and product development, Namrata has worked for some of the world's most renowned FMCG brands, including Coke, Pepsi, and Unilever, where she was instrumental in the development of the Baby Dove range. As a self-confessed beauty junkie, she has taken the plunge and launched her own skincare brand. We chat to Namrata about her inspiring career working for top industry brands, what she learned from being her own boss, and how she perceives that feeling of success. At the core of the conversation is the talk on mental health, and we hope you will find this episode both insightful and inspirational into how you can develop your mental strength, manage anxiety, and in turn achieve happiness within your life. Thank you so much, Namrata, for joining us today. We're really excited to have you and to talk about your career and your experience. Let's start with telling us uh, a little bit more about your background. So where did you grow up and how did you first get into the beauty industry? Oh, wow. Um, I grew up in Falls Church, Virginia. I mean, I'm mm. Indian, but I grew up in the United States. So I had like a very, I feel like I had a very, like it was the 80s. I had a very idyllic suburban upbringing. You know, we made, you know, snowmen outside our house and we had a yard and we used to go into the, like, like a park, right? A yard, like far. Like you could see it from our house, but it was far. And we would just go in there and play. And like people would leave their strollers outside their houses with babies in them. And like I think about now and it's like nobody would No, my gosh, we have so much more information about what could go wrong, you know? I just think about now how it is going to be for my daughter. I have a 10-year-old and like how different my upbringing was. Like you could get dropped off to the mall and nobody would know where anyone was. Like you couldn't find out. You'd have to go to a payphone. It's, it's just your question made me think about all those. So different. Yeah. <laughs> how different, yeah, how different, how different things are now. Like, yeah, how much, how, how dependent we become on those things. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I grew up in the States and then um, I uh, moved back to India when I was uh, 13, which now looking back on it, it's really hard. Um, mm-hmm. I had to learn a language from scratch. I was never very good at math or algebra or anything like that, but the Indian standard is very high. Um, and then I left again when I was 23 to go to grad school. I went to Austin in, in Texas, which is a great city. Um, and so, yeah, I spent two years there. And then I was, I've, yeah, I've been working in marketing since, gosh, for the most of my life, I would say. I would say, like, working on Planair now is... It's such a pleasure because it's it's so different from what I did before. It's kind of taking all the things that I did have a chance to learn and doing it in a way that makes sense to me. Like it's a very personal. It's been a very personal journey for me to to get to the brand. So you have a very impressive background in marketing and brand development for a few FMCG beauty brands, and you know FMCG brands in general. 
yeah. uh, all the way from Hope to Dove. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, that's amazing. That's a huge range. Um, and we were just wondering what made you decide to move um, and launch into a skincare brand of your own. Um, so, like, my journey, like I was saying before, is like so many things happened for me along the way. But, I mean, you know, in the beginning, the way that I was raised, it's the whole point of Claire. It's like the way that I was, I feel like it's my own commentary on maybe how I was raised and a commentary on the differences now, like raising a child now, raising somebody now. Like, I was raised in a way which was like, okay, well, you know, you go to a school, you go to university, then you get an MBA or like a really, you know, a technical degree, you get all these accomplishments, and then you go into the job market, and then you earn six-figure salary, you get a mortgage, you get a house, you become a vice president, by the time you're 42, you have your, like, or 32, or whatever it is, you have your corner window, and that never happened for me. Like, I mean, I guess it could have happened, I just, I felt so unhappy with that. I felt suffocated, and like I was trying to be something that somebody else wanted or like this idea that somebody had for me, but it was, it was so false. And I, the reason that I did, I guess I left is because I just came home one day and it wasn't like I had a panic attack or anything. Cause I've talked to people who've had that. Like, I don't think I had that. I just, I just came home one day and I was like, I can't, I, I physically felt sick. Like I had just had, I'd had my daughter um, and then I had my son and I I wasn't frightened. I was just like, this is not, I would look at all these people doing the next thing and the next thing and getting to the next level. And I would be like, super depressed. I'd be like, I don't, that's not who I want to be. That's not, that's not what's meant for me, but I didn't have the courage to do it. So eventually what happened was, because of a series of things, nothing to do with super much to do with work. It was more just triggers in my own life. I got to a point where my health, my stress levels and my health were so poor that I just, after 17 years, I just put my past. Like I went, I was at, I remember I was the day that I was at, I was at work and I came in and I went into a conference room and I just, I couldn't do it anymore. And I went downstairs and I put my past in the thing and I went to occupational health and I told them how I was feeling and and I left and I never came back. Oh, wow. And then I, was on, I was feeling like in a, unable to take decisions. A complete lack of clarity about where I was going. Things from the past would haunt me. I would constantly be comparing myself to other people. Just like, on, you, you yeah. know, like I, now. And now I look back at that and I'm like, so I took a year off and I just did a lot of work on myself. I mean, I just tried to do things really differently. I got some great help. So first of all, that was the most important thing. I worked for a company that no questions asked. They helped me. They supported me like for a year. I, you know, I did um, a Tuesdays. I would actually go into the priory and I would actually meet with other people that had been on similar circumstances, either, you know, like post, I think it was like a mixture of postnatal depression and stress and just lots of things building up. And um, I did a lot of internal, like internal thinking about myself. Like, what do I want? Mm-hmm. How do I want my life to play out? Like things you don't, I guess it was a midlife crisis. That's the thing. This happens to everybody in different stages of their life. And if I hadn't have gone through that, I think I would probably still be unhappy. So, yeah, I just knew that that wasn't for me anymore. And I needed Mm -hmm. to start from scratch. Mm -hmm. But then when I was speaking to people and I had therapy, I had group, I did a lot of reading. I did a lot of introspection. And it was more like you have to figure out what's important to you. 
what are the things that you, you know you absolutely love you know things like you know what do you like to read what are your hobbies what are you good at mm-hmm. um, I mean as cheesy as it sounds that whole vision boarding I didn't know about that in the past but I kind of I guess I kind of did that when I took my time off I kind of really rooted down to like what was it also the most important thing was that I felt like I wasn't there for my family like I wasn't present for my children and my husband mm-hmm. which is you know that can unfortunately that can lead to breakdown in relationships if you don't recognize and you don't take accountability for that then you can have some really important relationships which you might be actually neglecting because you haven't you're neglecting your mental health so the most important thing to me was like my health my family being there for my children being there for like important times and I couldn't do any of that in the previous job because I was I mean it was a lot of you know there was a lot of stuff that happened to me and also I just I wasn't in the mind frame to do that. So I was like, these are the things that I love to do. I love fashion. I mean, I love beauty. I started my career in feminine care and then color cosmetics. So I had a strong background in color cosmetics. I haven't done things in color cosmetics, but like it's, it all came with a fashion lens. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I love that side of the creative side of doing that and um, working with people that did that. And I didn't have that much of that in, in previous jobs. So I really had to think through like, what were the things that were important to me? How was I going to spend, like, okay, I was, whatever, 39. How was I going to spend the next 25 years playing that out and actually enjoying myself rather than feeling, like, trapped in a prison that I I couldn't leave? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So such an important message because I know, even for myself, you know, there's so much pressure from, from, you know, your family, from social media, everywhere you look. You know, there's so many different paths to go, and sometimes you kind of feel forced to do one thing just because others want it for you. Yeah, and it's so important to just reflect on what you actually want to do. Yes, mm-hmm. um, yes. So. and sometimes you know the problem is is that I I would say the most important thing about mental health is, is finding um, people that are outside your situation. If it's friends and family, as well intentioned and as well meaning as they are, they will often come with their own biases, and so. You know, my parents, who loved me so much, you know, they would do anything for me, were convinced that it was in my best interest to go back to a corporate job. Mm-hmm. And knowing everything that I know, I knew that wasn't the right decision. But, you know, the thing is, is that it's very important to get a third person view. Mm-hmm. That's the most, I think friends and family, they really want the best for you, but sometimes they can't give you a completely unbiased opinion. How could you? Mm-hmm. You're always trying to protect that person. I think men- your mental health is the most important thing because, like you said, it's the foundation of what your whole life is built on. And then, how can you be there for your children and your husband if you're not feeling like at a good place yourself? So, focusing on that, and of course, that yeah. then relates to what you want to do with your career. Yeah. And someone's career is a big part Absolutely. of their life. You know, now I have a balance. Like I'm really interested in what I'm doing, but I always still pull back from that. I mean, in some ways, people could say that, like, if you're Know, putting your own risk and your own financial resources into your own project mm-hmm. that becomes even more of a big obsession and I'm always very wary of that because I'm like you know the reason that I did this is so that I, I could actually live a more balanced life and I think that's what everybody is trying to do today they're trying to live a more balanced life so if I fall into the trap of becoming on that same train of like workaholism doing too much taking on too much like I did before well, what was the point of doing this so I'm always with the work that I did on myself um, in the time that I took off and, you know, with the help of like resources and some of the books that I use, I'm always trying to check in with myself to see, am I feeling frantic? Am I getting to that place where I'm not making good decisions I have too much on? 
And the best thing is that you can actually pull back because you're the person who's in charge a little bit more. So you can pull back from that and say, well, this is how much I can do. And this is how I'm, it's very intentional is what mm -hmm. I'm saying. I guess living a balanced life because mm -hmm. you can get sucked into so much. I mean, I can imagine even in, you know, in the careers that you guys have, how competitive it is and how you have to keep up. And it's the same thing in beauty. You have to keep up with this compulsion of like wanting. But I think it's super important to safeguard your mental health and always pull back from that and say, well, the most important thing, if everything went away, is, is me and my relationship with myself. So mm -hmm. I'm always trying to stay, stay in that balance. And, and this thing about, um, you know, like CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy, you always pull back from yourself. You become the watcher, you're the observer rather than being in the emotion. And you say, okay, well, you know, if I was, if I was Bianca's best friend, this is what I would be advising her. If I was her friend, this is what I'd be telling her rather than being in it yourself and mm -hmm. trying to like pull back and always check in with yourself to see how you're feeling. Mm -hmm. That's really important. interesting viewpoint, actually, to look at it. Yeah, I to do that more, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. I think when you're in it, you feel the emotions. You're like, oh my gosh, I forgot this deadline. Your heart is pounding. Your mind is racing. But if you just say to yourself, okay, and this is like literally, it is CBT, it's what I learned from therapy. It's like if you pull out of it, and you're like, right now, I'm going to advocate for her. I'm going to be on the side, be the watcher, and be like, okay, rationally, if this deadline passes, would the world end? Do you know what I mean? Because mm -hmm. when you're in it, it's like, mm -hmm. it's, that's the whole thing. Right. It's like trying to coach yourself to be better at that, mm -hmm. which has taken a long time, but yeah. I feel like inner peace and balance is the new luxury, honestly. Like, that's yeah. what one's trying to achieve right now. And I understand it makes everything a lot easier. I mean, I had so many advantages of, of working in these big environments before I left. Like, I, I went to, you know, went to China. I worked a lot in Brazil. I worked in India, all over Western Europe, the Middle East. I mean, it was honestly in some ways such a, to go out every day, understand them, and also what it takes to make a really big brand commercially successful. Like, you know, the billion-dollar brands with that like six billion euro like huge brands like Dove and, and the ones that we worked on um, it's it's a very different environment from running your own brand and running your own company um, but I think it really definitely sets the stage for if you want to, to do that it gives you such a good you know set of tools to go in and create your own you know smaller organization I guess mm -hmm. What do you think are the most important tools that you learned? Yeah, I think the, the most important, one of the things that I, I really learned uh, in the time that I was, because I worked in, in brand development to that, as opposed to teams in markets that are going in and say you create advertising or you create a new product innovation or a new, I don't know, let's make it up, a new molecule. Um, there's research and development and then there's brand development, which is the thing that I want, and then there's go-to-market. So the go-to-market folks are in each market and I spent maybe the first four years of my career doing the go-to-market stuff which was all very executional like um, uh, the global team would develop the creative product and all of that and we would go and we would translate it we would develop the you know the different proposals for the different markets in our area and put it but we wouldn't do the creation the mix creation of the job of you know creating the mix and then when I moved so when I moved from India to London I worked on a global team and then eventually I worked on the global team for Dove and we created the baby care range for Dove, which was really, you know, really exciting proposition. But I think the most important thing that I learned in the time that I worked on, on brand development is thinking strategically, like thinking in a very lateral way. As in, if you take all the things that you learn, you know, from, you know, talking to customers and consumers and doing your research, 
how do you put that together in a way that makes sense? An advertising asset, a typography, a font, a piece of formulation, you know, so the big insight, well, we did a lot of research when we developed the um, positioning and the strategy for Baby Drum, for example, and it was a while ago, so this is probably not going to sound like really exciting now, but back then it was. And we worked with mothers and we talked to them and they said that the biggest challenge in motherhood is not becoming a mother, it's judgment from other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was really interesting to us at the time because we were like, well, why is there so much perfectionism in motherhood? And can we maybe turn that on its head? Can we maybe be the brand that says it's okay to totally make mistakes and have a messy house? All the things that, you know, we're seeing more and more now, but um, we were going up against, obviously, Johnson & Johnson. So like with the Dove, we were like, there's no right or wrong way to parent. We completely just were like, we're not interested in babies who don't cry. We're actually interested in, we're going to advocate for the mother. So I think this idea of, so then everything we did became about the mother. The fragrance was more grown up and sophisticated because it was a reflection of her values. It wasn't like the Dove baby powder smell, like no offense to Johnson's, but it was like much more everything that we learned about her and about modern motherhood was reflected in how we executed the brand. So from the fragrance to the packaging, she was like, I'm sick of these, you know, bottles where you can't open them. You have a baby in one hand. So we did all pumps. Mm-hmm. We looked at like every aspect of her life and really tried to wrap that up into what we were going to offer. And this idea of thinking, you know, 10,000 square feet, not just thinking about the execution, but the bigger strategy piece about how the, the consumer insight or how her life is changing reflecting that in the way we talk to her, advertise, create, develop the packaging or the fragrance, it has been extremely valuable. And then also, you know, the idea of building a team that understands it as well as you do, I think I rely on that a lot because like even with Plenair, we're not, we don't, we work with people who already understand what we're trying to do. If we have to explain or over-explain exactly this the X factor behind Plenaire, like there is an emotion and a very strong feeling behind the brand, and I think it's very visceral. So people, just people, just gravitate towards it, or they don't. And I think we always work with teams and people who have those same values. Um, so we get asked a lot, "Oh, is this for young people? Is it for old people?" And we're like, "No, you know." I mean, it's like the converse shoe of beauty. It's like, do you? It doesn't matter. Like you could be the first, you know, sixteen and get your first pair of trainers. Then you could get one at 39, like a distressed pair at 39 when you go through a divorce. And then you could be the chic grandmother at 75 in, in Dover Street Market buying a pair of, you know, the cool ones. Like, it doesn't matter what age you are. What matters is you, if you buy into the philosophy of this culty mm-hmm. brand called Converse. So it's the same like for us. Like, it's not, it's really, we have a set of values that we are focused on, you know, which is very much around, you know, this idea of holistic inside out beauty and mm-hmm. what that means and how you know typical beauty brands talk to you about problem solution or uh, this idea of external appreciation we don't actually come at it from either of those angles we really coming at it from the point of view of emotional well-being so anyone who wants who appreciates emotional well-being which is a valid message at any age could buy into us if that makes sense mm-hmm. um really interesting <laughs> yeah, it's like that. really flipping segmentation on its head. Yeah, and, and I think that people, I think we, when I started my career, it was very much around demographic segmentation. Yeah. You live in this neighborhood, you're this age, and like, you know, you have this level of income. I, I still remember all making all those charts, like, you know, SCCA, and this is the 
educational and income. And it's like, mm. it doesn't matter now. At the end of the day, it's about attitudes too. So we really relied heavily on attitudinal segmentation because we know that people's values and beliefs are what are driving their choices today. People aren't really interested in like, it doesn't matter whether you live, like you could be living in a favela in Brazil and still want a Gucci, you know, pair of Gucci trainers. It, it doesn't matter because you have access to media mm -hmm. in a completely different way. And, yeah. and so I think working to that is incredibly patronizing. And it's more just about people's attitudes towards things that really open up opportunities in a completely. I think the way that marketing has shifted over the years as well is just goes to show how much a brand is able to like either adopt or start up in this kind of industry especially now like targeting new millennials and yeah the next generation and i also love that you built the brand also based on your personal experience and like what you needed from a brand and a product and you've got a product development marketing background so what better to like start a business than understanding what customers are looking for so a good business always starts with a great product but the importance of marketing is crucial from your background as a marketer and a product developer how did you grow plein air and build an authentic brand image and when did you start the brand yeah so we started the work in 2017 mm -hmm. so i i kind of have the sense that the bigger industry like the bigger beauty brands were missing a trick when it came to marketing not so much in Europe, but more in North America. I feel like it's super clunky and really patronizing. And it's like, oh, you're a teenager. This is what, you know. And it's mm -hmm. like, no, people don't think like that. Younger people aren't like that anymore. Mm -hmm. And the idea of this adolescence in your head is, is a myth. And these girls are extremely, and boys, are extremely sophisticated. They have access to information from the age of eight, nine that we never had. They are very cynical, you know. I remember doing the research and we, we asked a 13-year-old and a 39-year-old or 40-year-old, like, where would you buy this new lipstick? And I would go, of course, I would go into, I would go into a store and say, it's really silly to buy lipstick online because you wouldn't know how it would look, you know. Mm -hmm. Of course, there's no other no question. And then the 13-year-old was like, well, mom, I don't think I would ever buy in this store because you know those ladies in the store, they get a commission, first of all, so they're supposed to sell you something. I don't trust that. And two, I would never try something until I watched so-and-so YouTuber swatch it. And yeah. once she swatched it, and I believe it, I'm going to trust it more. Mm -hmm. And then I'll think about maybe going through it. There are times that I would happily buy something online based off of a review or a bunch of reviews I've watched or read. And I just thought, well, that's really interesting. Like, people are not trusting advertising anymore. They're not trusting big companies anymore. They're not trusting the whole process of, of buying something change so fundamentally people are more focused on influencers reviews like again authenticity content that people are putting out there to their audience they're buying much more referrals based and mm -hmm. so there was that piece of it there was also this piece around this this girl or boy that was born after the year 2000 they were kind of approaching beauty in a very different way they were really questioning what was in the product um the supply chain they wanted transparent information around how the product was made where it was created like I think it's really reached a boiling point now. Like we see it so much more now with this whole hatred towards plastic and understanding raw materials and ingredients. But when even to when we started the, the work, when we went out, uh, I remember being out in LA and we were talking to one of um, in the research. We were talking to one of the girls and she was talking about how um, she was studying marine biology. She was just talking about the fires that had had ravaged California. She was talking about marine life and this 
these were things that were coming up in the conversation, which people in their 30s, who are millennials, I guess that segment now that's having children and has gotten a lot older, they weren't thinking in that way. They were defining themselves in a different way, which was amazing. But this set of, this cohort of, of young people coming into beauty, I guess at that time, they were 16, 17, were really defining their choices in a, in a quite a different way. So the, the mistrust, the cynicism of, of typical advertising, like throw away, like we don't, phony science, we don't believe any of that, combined with this idea of altruism, like truly putting groups of people and putting self ahead of consumption was, I guess, starting up, but it's really grown and, and, and you know, it's, it's a huge shift. So we, we knew that anything we did on the brand really needed to respect that. And it wasn't an afterthought. I see brands all the time that are treating it as an afterthought. And um, it's not the most important, like it's not something, at the end of the day, being recyclable, being sustainable, respecting um, the environment and putting amazing things in your product that don't have any links to toxins is something that anyone can replicate. But I think what somebody cannot replicate is this idea of the emotion behind it, which is we have to have both. So we tried to have all those things, of course, you know, we tried to do our best with materials and encourage conscious consumption and create a collection that's very capsule and things that you need, you don't have to have thousands of things, sending that message of conscious consumption, but also the emotion side of it, the design, the colors, the feeling, like nobody can replicate that. Really interesting. I actually, um, aside from doing social media, I work yeah. in marketing as well. Um, and something that I work for quite a small brand and yeah. it's growing very quickly though. And something that we're struggling with a lot is kind of understanding, you know, the difference between marketing to different age groups and you know yeah. like how do we market to to them simultaneously how do we make sure to kind of to understand them at the same time now that everyone yeah. has different criteria yeah um, so it's just really interesting to hear your thought process around that yeah um, i mean i think there's no right i think with any brand you have to kind of pick what you stand for whether it's a font a color a way of being from the in my mind, one of the nicest models is creative target audience versus consumption target audience. So a creative target audience is someone you always show in your advertising. It's the girl that you see on our feed or the boy that you see on our feed. Whereas our consumption target audience is much broader. It's anyone who feels attracted to that, aligned to it, has a need for it. And that has, has to be big. It couldn't just be this one person who comes, you know, an environmentally focused young man or woman who walks into Liberty and buys us because of X is you can't build a business on that like you just said you have to be broad and so i think it's finding that balance between being true to your creative target as in always showing that with quite a lot of discipline i think that's important as well nobody wants a brand that's everything to everybody yeah you see a lot of brands trying that right where they sub brands you know they're like oh we stand for this and then pressure from investors oh let's launch this let's go here let's go i think that's and then it, it doesn't work out you know one thing has an emotional affinity with something but can't go grab another segment or you need another brand or another way of thinking. But I think it's, it's really fascinating. It's the fundamental tension between growing but also trying to stay true, yeah. to, your, true to what, you know, true to the most important thing. And are you okay with saying, well, I'm just satisfied with being in this market segment and doing it really well. 
do you believe that you should have a really focused target audience and then you can expand to def- different cons- consumer, but at the beginning you should focus your attention on one? A hundred percent. I mean, I think also you have to be true. You have to find that one thing that is really, Im- that that builds the idea or the person with the category that they're focusing on, you know? And I think this is the biggest struggle. It's like, you could have a celebrity say, I'm going to create a makeup line and people might buy it for five minutes. But if that celebrity doesn't have something in them, yeah, expert. And I think that's what people pay today, like for people who are really expert in one area, mm-hmm. coming out with something that is, whether it's a fragrance or it's, it's toothpaste, it doesn't matter if you have that genuine connection with that, that you built up, not all of a sudden overnight you woke up one day and you've been focusing on mm-hmm. for 10 years. And then right. you say, well, yeah, that's what is cool about me. And now I'm going to create a brand around it. Then it really works strongly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because people buy into the brand just as much as the actual product. They buy into the image. Yes. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So going back a little bit to, you know, how it was to translate from a corporate business to working by yourself or working yeah. for yourself. Um, how did that transition go? Did you find it very difficult um, or... Did you find that it was something that, you know, like we talked about, you just needed to do? I mean, I think it was hard. Let's be honest. I mean, it's much easier now. Um, But like, I don't know. I feel like there's a sense of judgment around people who want to do something on their own or build their own platform. I mean, people don't really understand it. And I think, I think it's okay if people don't understand it. But I think, you know, coming back to that mental health piece, I think at some point you kind of have to let go of them. And I used to find it very hard. You know, when I was in my 20s and 30s, I was really worried. Like, like I was really worried about what other people think of me. And, you know, there's a book that I'll talk about later, which is 13 Things That Mentally Strong People Don't Do. And it's this idea that you can either live your life by someone else's standards, which unfortunately what happens is it builds up. Right, that's what happens. It builds up and it builds up and it builds up, and at some point, it's because you just can't take it. Or you can say, "Well, I know that this person might not think the best of me, or maybe judging me, or whatever." But I'm, I choose, I choose to make myself happy. But I think there's that whole thing as well, right? When I was, you know, starting work, I'd be like, "I don't know, like, what am I doing?" So it's much easier now that I see, I get DMs all the time from customers. I, you know, we have so many people reaching out to us amazing and we were in wallpaper magazine this weekend like we didn't even I mean we didn't even expect that it's not like we went out and, and thought of that like it's just as people wanting to support our brand and do positive things for us and and wanting to, you know wanting to help support this idea of well-being and beauty and so I find it really amazing now but I think when back in 2017 if you would have asked me like how it's incredibly tough and it's very lonely as well. Um, and you guys have each other, so that's already that's nice. Nice. But I think, um, you know, I have my husband. He's been incredible, really, with, uh, you know, he has a full-time job. But he's, you know, really my sounding board for lots of things, day-to-day things. And we always come at things at a very different angle. Like, I'll always come at it from a more maybe contextual, emotional point of view. He'll come at it with a more, like, rational, financial, uh, you know, standpoint. So it's a good... It's a good balance to have, but there were definitely times where I was just like, "What am I doing? Like, do 
just doing nothing. I'm just wasting my time. <laughs> I don't know. It's like embarrassing. Is this product ever going to launch? Like, who the hell will care when it does? No, I was like, who the hell will care when it does launch? Like, nobody's going to You know, you have this, all these things in your mind. You're like, no one's going to care, you know? Um, what's the platform for this product? Like, um, but we were super lucky. We, we got a call from a retailer right away. Uh, we didn't even have, we didn't even have a product, you know? when we received a call from the team at Liberty, we, we were like in a, like Cara, who you know, it's like amazing. You know, we started working with her very early on. Um, she really, I think she really, you know, like I said before, working with teams that get you, yeah. that what you're trying to do is super different. Mm -hmm. She's very much an early adopter of trends. She has, you know, children in this, you know, she gets it in a completely different way. I don't have to over explain anything to her. You know, we had a small piece in the Financial Times, People were like really interested in what we were trying to do. So we had some support from retailers very early on. And I think we were never going to be an online brand. That was something that I think is very trendy. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of people want to do. Mm -hmm. But to, to do that, you have to raise quite a lot of money. And we are coming at it from having worked and had careers outside of this is not my first day job. I'm not building a DTC brand as my first day job. I've done this a million times and I've worked with investors and I realized how hard it is to be under the pressure from external investors. So that's just not something I'm willing to do. And until I don't have to, I won't. Um, I'm really proud that people support our brand. People are genuinely interested in our story and, and what we want to do without like seeking payment for it. Or, mm -hmm. And we're just, you know, we're trying to not make a paid brand. We're trying to do things, how things where you try a product, it's really good. And I think people are resonating with that. I think that's, it's all coming, it's going a little bit. There's quite a lot of backlash towards brands that they seem to promise a lot and you buy them online. But then when you bring them home, you're like, well, that wasn't so great. I'm not sure mm -hmm. why this brand was even existed. So we tried to stay away a bit from that. And um, it's also very expensive now to create something where you have your own channel. So we do a mix of wholesale and selling on our own channel mm -hmm. and we're okay that we're doing it very slowly um we don't want to be everywhere at once um and i think that's staying boutique is something that will continue to be something there's a genuine you know, loyalty like i don't know mm -hmm. for me i'm not going any i'm not trying to get to another destination right now i'm not trying to sell this and go to something else no this is it for me like i really enjoy what i do mm -hmm. <laughs> so i love like, that I love the yeah. story and how you built it so authentically and it came from something you've been really passionate about. The great thing about being an entrepreneur is nobody's watching. You're not in some organization leading a 25-person team. You can get out there, be humble, like, this was wrong, and just, you know, in a sense, just quickly correct the problem. I've been in teams and worked in environments where we would be in, like, in a meeting and everybody in that meeting, this is, you know, the thing that you always want to not happen. That's what you learn. You're like, mm -hmm. okay, so we're here. We spent like 40 million on this launch and um, we all know it's not going to work. But <laughs> that is crazy. That one person that kind of says it. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think what's great about being in your own company is like if something didn't work, put it in front of a customer and it's like, okay, you're getting like, I, oh, I read a really great story on Business of Fashion the other day where like there's this brand called Glow Recipe. I don't know if you know them. Yeah. Today, or a Korean brand. Yeah, I've heard of them. And so, they were talking, I didn't read the whole piece, but they were talking about how like they had this amazing product and 
it was selling really well and everything, but like one person came and said the thing that everybody wanted to say, but was afraid to maybe in the company, or, and they were like, this really smells bad. Mm-hmm. So literally told their audience, we are changing the fragrance. We hear you, we know it sucks, we know you like everything else about it, but we're gonna quickly, and I love stuff, I love that. I love like, you don't, nobody knows, nobody has the answer today. Like everything is crowdsourced. So this is the, the great thing about working in this environment that we're all in, you know, we all, and put stuff out there course correct that continuous um process of, of of making your product great you can do that um as opposed to the more old-fashioned way of doing things it's harder when you have you know 50 million pieces that you made somewhere that's hard that's that's not going to be corrected anytime soon so it's just a different different way of thinking i completely agree it makes so much sense um but i want to go back a little bit and talk about mental health because your journey with that is so interesting and especially with Mental Health Awareness Week coming up and yeah. social media and the constant pressure to compete with others on everything from your physique down to your career and even people's personal relationships. It's just crucial to raise more awareness on this and also people who have yeah. had like mental health problems and then overcame it. Um, so yeah. maybe you can tell us more about how you built up your mental strength after definitely. hitting that rock bottom. No, definitely. I mean, I think... First of all, the, the, the most important thing that anyone can do about mental health is talking about it in a way that feels, doesn't feel loaded, you know? I think the more that we are open about the conversation and the topic with each other, the less controversial it'll be and the less stigma will be around mental health, you know? When, um, when I was at the Priory all those, you know, those years ago when I was working on myself, one of the great things that situation was that we were with people who you know some of them had come in for issues like stress others had come in because they'd attempted suicide many times others were bipolar severely bipolar and were on you know lithium everybody came in with their different things and there's such a broad spectrum and nobody's problems are worse than someone else and i think this idea that we can talk about it and it becomes part of the fabric of our life in a way that is doesn't exist because I think in well I come you know I mean nobody ever talks no that's just you're crazy if you have mental health it doesn't exist and that's another form of denial that's mm-hmm. another form that makes you even more ill is that they you don't acknowledge it and you don't treat it you know if you had a broken arm you would get quite a lot of sympathy you yeah. get a lot of sympathy you get a lot of support you get a lot of help so why is it different if you have mental health issue there's no difference actually. in some ways it's even more taxing living with a mental health issue or with something like, you know, you have a child that has gender dysphoria or a child that doesn't feel right in his or own, her, her own body, how hard it is to be that child and to be the carer of that child and having that empathy. So I think the most important thing with mental health is talking about it, is, is having empathy for each other. Um, you know, validation is extremely important. One of the, the most important things that I learned, probably again, talking to the piece around maybe parenting is, your reactions towards things. Um, one of the most important things that, that I learned was, you know, if somebody has a feeling or if somebody's feeling something, the most important thing to do is really validate. So if my daughter comes in with um, a problem she's dealing with or something where she feels she wasn't treated well, I think we, we work through that problem together and, and the idea is to get her to understand the problem in a different way. But the most important thing is to first acknowledge that the problem exists rather than being dismissive of it. So I think human tendency sometimes is say, well, um, you know, if you were treated this way, it's probably nothing. Or 
I'd ignore it. You know, it's probably just going to be fine. And maybe it's all in your head. And I think in society, that's a message that's seen as trying to be helpful. Whereas I think the most important thing is like if somebody's gone through something traumatic and there's, you know, a miscarriage or it's, a, you know, the most important thing is saying to them, I'm sorry that that happened. Just saying, I'm sorry that that happened to you. That must be awful. And just being in that, in, in it with them mm-hmm. and validating them. That's the first thing somebody wants to hear. Mm-hmm. And then it's about, you know, taking it forward. So being empathetic and, and validating those feelings every day. I do it every day. Like, even if it's something small, I try and do, do it every day. Um, making sure that you talk about it in a transparent way. One of the best, you know, you can see this. One of the best books I re- read was, I don't know if you've seen the TED Talk, the uh, Brene Brown TED Talk. Um, oh, yeah, from, yeah. Yeah. So th- this was kind of a turning point for me. Like, I, I did, you know, obviously <laughs> read so much of her book and the things that she's, there's a whole chapter in here on how to give feedback to someone. And I feel like every person in the corporate world, this should be, this should be basically regulation reading for any manager, any line manager, or for anyone sure. yeah. giving feedback. Because it's a hard thing to do, right? As in, you know, we all have jobs. We all have to get them done. And at the end of the day, sometimes you have to, you have to hold people accountable. I don't think I'd be here today running a business if I wasn't able to hold people accountable in a nice way. But the most important thing is, is the how, is learning how to do that in a way that feels good for everyone and also being vulnerable, not showing that you're the boss with all the answers, but just trying to be in it with someone in an um, empathetic is, is really important. I think the CBT, I don't mm-hmm. know if uh, your audience uh, would uh, benefit from that. I'm sure everyone would. It's, it's a very, you know, you can, there's so many videos and things on it, you know, you can pick up and and that up and put that into your routine but it's really this idea that if something stressful is happening to you in a capsule if something stressful is happening you can either react to it as in be in it and react to it or you can step out of it it's tough right depending on the thing oh i don't know maybe maybe you wrote something and you spent a lot of time on it and somebody came to you and told you this is horrifying it's the worst work you know whatever whatever that might be or you know you're going through something with your health your own Whatever it might be, I think this idea of CBT existentially, it promotes that you should can try and step out of it and work through that problem rather than being in it. Because if you're in it, you will react emotionally and you might do things that you regret. You might say things you regret. Whereas if you give yourself a little bit of space and a little bit of time and think through the problem in a more rational way, um, it can help you. So it's really about being present. And it's not what I found is before I did this, I would either catastrophize so I would say, oh, the whole world's going to come. Like, this is the end of everything for me. Mm-hmm. Which we all know it's not true, but you're, this is how your mind works, right? Yeah. Fight or fight, mm-hmm. biologically, your amygdala is here. And it's telling you to save yourself or it's it's biologically there for a reason. Humans have evolved for a reason. So it's, it's trying to be more rational and, and, and think it through. Um, so I would catastrophize or I would spend a lot of time ruminating. Ruminating is another classic sign of depression where it's like, I should have done that should have said that mm-hmm. I should have I should have I should you know and it's yeah you can just these are all things that as a mentally strong person you can kind of a bit coach yourself and you know it's mm-hmm. never too early with anything we do like with a lot of the stuff we're doing on there we talk about that on our social media channels like every single post is something to do with that like if mm-hmm. we had one post on the power of tears how important it is to cry it's not a sign of emotional weakness it's a release valve 
That's so important to be able to cry, to be able to show emotion, to show vulnerability. So if we start encouraging people, whether it's young people, people at any age, from a young age, to look after their mental health, tears are okay, showing emotion is okay. I think we'll have a generation of much less therapy at 40. You know, that's my take on it. It's like if we start making this okay and talking about it in a different way, then we'll have a lot of people at the age of 30 or 40 won't have a mental health Mm -hmm. episode or won't, God forbid, think about taking their own life or um, feel that they have no choice and they have no one no one in their corner but just you know just to wrap up that question the other the other great book that we, that I read a lot and I I, I, I love this is Amy uh, Morin's 13 things mentally strong people don't do and it's really a great book because every chapter it's very simple like every chapter is a different rule so they don't give away their power mentally strong people don't shy away from change they don't focus on things they can't control they don't worry about pleasing everyone and what she's done in every chapter is she's taken this everyday example of like somebody who is doing it right and how they overcame it so mm-hmm. the classic one that i love is you know i i really dislike my mother-in-law i you know i really can't stand that she's controlling my life I can't and it's like, well, how about if you turn that idea on its head and you don't give away your power? And it just kind of leads you through a different way of thinking as opposed to letting other people have the power in your life, taking that power back a little bit. And I just, you don't actually need to make any, any changes to an external environment. You might still have a really dominating mother-in-law or a terrible boss or an abusive boyfriend. But how are you thinking differently to get you out of that circumstance and I would like to read that because I think everyone goes through in some way some form of like mental health struggle because no one is going to be 100% happy with their life at every single point but I think also what can be difficult is knowing you don't feel right but maybe not knowing the cause of that or the root problem that's that's exactly right and it's also just I suppose our reaction is to right a lot of it was I felt that you know for a long time when this is before I left, I would blame other people. Okay, that was me. I was the person who was like, you know, my life isn't good. Somebody, you know, this hasn't happened for me. This hasn't, this is like the passive kind of victim mindset. This hasn't happened for me. This, I'm never the one who's, you know, good enough. Nothing I do is good enough. It's all down to bad luck. All this kind of victim talking, which is, uh, again, a, a behavior that's a learned behavior. If something doesn't work out, you blame someone else or you play the victim or you, um, try and make excuses for it as opposed to well okay that didn't work out you know there's probably a reason for that you know this is me taking my power back and thinking about how I can make things different the next time or I can take control of my circumstances to make sure the outcome as opposed to I mean every single day we all like all of us face rejections we have rejections you know all the time I'll put my whole soul into something to a retailer or somebody and they just won't like it they just won't like me mm-hmm. they won't like it they won't and I, either I can say well that's terrible luck and I need to fix everything about my product but what I realized is actually with the working on my own self-esteem is that I don't really go into those situations anymore thinking that I'm the problem I'm like well okay there wasn't a meeting of minds but somebody else will find me I'll find a connection somewhere else sometimes you'll have a big win and sometimes you won't mm-hmm. and if you don't it's I think the leadership thing is how you react to that the leadership thing isn't that you won or you didn't win. It's well, how did I how did I react to that loss, or how did I react to that person saying, "No, you just don't have." One. It's the reaction piece that what and I didn't know that before. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't yeah. know that it, what you can control, what's in your control, is nothing. All we can do is 
control that our reaction to mm-hmm. so that's so right something yeah. that I always find is very difficult is when you know you're trying to adopt these mindsets and you're really trying to make sure that you yeah. are um, you know making the best out of every situation but then there's a lot of people like around you maybe family members maybe you know friends or colleagues that don't think the same way how do you approach kind of you know not getting frustrated when other people don't really have the same mindset you're you're, you're yourself trying to keep that mindset and establish it yeah it's pretty hard yeah I think that's a really good and I think, again, I learned a lot about relationships and navigating them. And one of the most important things is investing in the relationships that bring you positive. That's the most important. If you have a feeling or a sense or, you know, that someone is maybe not has the best in mind for you, I think it's a really hard decision that you have to kind of um, navigate the boundaries of that. So, for example, with family and friends or people around you, if you're trying to instill habits in yourself that lead to mental strength, really important habits, like one, not comparing yourself to other people. And your mom or your best friend is constantly comparing you to someone else. And you really value their relationship. Of course you do. I mean, with with family, it's much harder, but they're constantly saying, well, look at this person. They did this and look at that person. You know, they've got three kids and no nanny and you you need a nanny with one kid, all this kind of stuff, right? Toxic comparison. I think it's very important to um, put boundaries in but in a way that isn't aggressive, in a style of communication that isn't aggressive. So the next time somebody like that in that situation says something to you, you can either be passive, which means you accept what they say, you know, it's your mom or whatever, you just accept it and feel the pain of it. You can be uh, aggressive, so you can lash out and say, well, you're so non-supportive, mom, like I just literally hate, you know, just the whole make the relationship. Uh, you can be passive aggressive, which means you can not respect that person's rights and you cannot respect your own by being cold to them and not explaining why. Mm-hmm. Which is really the worst of all of the ways you react to something. Mm-hmm. Or you can be assertive, where you can say to them very clear boundary, like, Mom, I, I really enjoy our conversations, I really enjoy, or to your friend, I really enjoy, you know, uh, our time together. However, when you compare me to other people, or you compare me, it makes me feel like this. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, if you keep doing that, it's going to be hard. And give them time to think about that and reflect about that. Because I think very important to communicate in a really loving and assertive way that somebody's behaviors are okay or not. I mean, for a long time, I wouldn't address those things in my life for a long, long time. And I think a lot, it takes a lot of practice, you know. I'd have somebody say to me, oh, I'll meet you for lunch. And they would cancel, and then they'd cancel the next time and cancel the third time. And there's a tendency to be, like, either passive-aggressive, don't, you know, give them the cold shoulder next time, or not ever passive and go along with it. Or or you can actually say, you know what, my time is really important. And actually, most of my friends, or um, what I ex- my expectation of a friendship is that when you say to me that you're going to meet me, you'll show up. And when you don't show up, it actually makes And this, this is very hard to do. So hard. Like, yeah. When you don't show up, I feel undervalued. I feel that our friendship isn't worth anything to you. I feel bad. I feel inconvenienced because I might have had childcare arrangements that day, whatever it might be. And then let them think about it and also put them on the line a little bit to say if that continues, unfortunately, I, I can't really make friends. With them. I know this is this is stuff that is so hard. It's hard. It's yeah. hard. It's, yeah, I always put up a wall. That's like the way I deal with it. And it's yeah. good. But I put like a glass wall between me and that person in a way in my mind. And I'm like, your words can't hit me, but I'm going to move forward. I'm not bringing you along. And that's kind of, it's not a good way to deal with it either. 
Yeah, that's a, that's an unhealthier way to deal with something. And ultimately, you could have had a chance with that. Actually, what what I learned is that it might feel good in the moment to you know block that person or however. But actually, what's better is you might have actually had a shot with that person. Move on in a good way if that person could just for a minute understand how you. Maybe that person actually hasn't even thought a minute what what you think. Kind of like they they really the same to you know with trolls. Like we oh gosh, I received a comment the other day. You know, about something you know related to something else and it was like the best way to deal with people like that or talk to situations where somebody's trying to tear you down is actually to say hey everything okay this is what I really meant by it I think your words were not intended to hurt me but they did and approach them in a way that makes them not feel attacked even though that they've attacked you and see whether there is a chance forward with mm-hmm. some kind of but of course you know things like hate or people you know tearing it's, it's not it's not okay and it's very very important communicate when it's not okay and the boundaries of not being okay because I, I personally think it, it does make you unhappy when you continue to take something from someone and you haven't had the platform, you haven't been able to address it you ruminate about it think about it and that's you know that's time away from other things that could um could bring you joy right could bring yeah. you happy the the other thing i think is very important that i'm you know i'm, I'm not great at but i think it's, it's just gratefulness like i know it sounds like Oprah hour, but it really has helped us as a family to be not in any outward way, but just to be grateful for what we have and to appreciate. I mean, particularly now, I think with so many people falling ill, I think it's gratefulness actually makes me happy. I, I personally think you know that's the root of happiness is that truly appreciating and being in the moment and not taking things for granted a little bit is um, makes you a more happy person. I love that. Okay, so I think to end the conversation, let's talk about success and how do you define success in your life and what does it mean to you? I mean, I think, you know, we talked about this before, but I think the most, like, success is what I've learned. And I think, you know, it's different at different ages. I think if you'd asked me this question when I was in my 20s, you would have obviously gotten a very different answer about these, I guess, external badges of success. Like, I don't know, like, being on the cover of a magazine or, like, winning an award or... I don't I don't really value those things anymore. I mean, it, honestly, it's really... It's great if it happens. I'm thrilled if it happens. But I don't define success anymore by external badges. That is a very... That is very thin ice to be on. It's your own happiness and how you define success is based on external environment and what other people think. That's thin ice, mentally, like from a mental health standpoint. You have to... Focus on the key relationships in your life. Um, you have to focus on, I think, for good mental health. So the way I live my life is just is focusing on my relationship with myself. You know, I see my son now, he's six, and I see, you know, I remember when my nephew, who's now 19, was three or four, and I see how, like, you know, his message, I see her relationship with her son at 19, and I remember him as a baby, and I think, you know, with my son or my daughter, I'm like, they're never going to be six again. This is the only year they're going to be six. And they're going to be seven, and they're going to be eight, and they're not going to be good. And I think what we try and do is, is really appreciate that. I think it's very, you know, in the, in the careers that we have to think about all these other things, the family and, and health and, and the parents, as, you know, that's the stuff on the side. My real thing is this, my career, my job, these external badges. And I see so many examples of people who prioritize that, until they lose their job, or until they lose their health, until they lose their relationships, 
and never be that person where the main thing is what you be that person where the main thing is who you are. I mean, I'm, I'm not, not at all to say that your job shouldn't bring you happiness, of course it should, but know that it's a piece of you and it's not your whole life. I used to live my life where, you know, my main thing was getting stuff done for other people and that whole vacuum of the job and then the stuff around the side on the fringes was that, that one hour that I allowed myself to do this or that. And now I live my life in the main course and the main purpose of my life is spending time doing things I love and appreciating that. I think staying present, you know, not worrying about the future or, or regretting all the actions past. Um, I think from a commercial standpoint, success for our business and our brand is, um, you know, there are financial targets. But I think the most important thing is that when people use us, they love us and they want to come back for more. You know, they, I think all great ideas, all great business ideas come from that circle, that virtuous circle of, I mean, let's take aside being financially successful, building from all of that, but it's this everyday actions with customers liking you, loving you, they can't find you, they go to the next store and the next store. All great brands and products have that, that lighthouse effect, like, oh, if I can't find it here, I'm not going to buy something else. I'm going to go and see whether I can find it online or find it somewhere else. Or, and that's, I think, I think if we achieve that with our products, that would be success for us. But getting that loyalty, people wanting to come back again and again, and building. Um, when I was in when I was in grad school, I read the story of the guy who was actually a, a doctor and his brother who invented the bugaboo. You know the bugaboo buggy, mm-hmm. and it was it's really interesting story where the guy he just saw lots of mothers struggle with getting their babies out of the car seat into a buggy, mm-hmm. and it was it was it was simple as that. Exactly, and and he was like, well, what if they just created a buggy that clipped on from the car seat? Like, why wouldn't you? You know, it's, it's stuff like that. And I think that one idea made people seek this buggy out, like seek it out. And I think for us, if we can bed down this idea of emotional well-being in a way that's very organic. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was such an inspiring conversation, and it's great to shed so much light on mental health and your career journey, and then just the whole journey of how you found your happiness. And, you know, everyone defines success in different ways. And, like, when I look at your background, you seem like a very successful person to me. But then even people who are successful in the grand scheme of the way you think about it struggle too and go through things as well. So I think it was such an insightful conversation. And thank you so much for all your invaluable tips as well. So for everyone listening, where can they find you and your brand? I mean, I'm pretty active on Instagram. Also, you know, anyone who always email hello at planair.co. Yeah, we're always open to feedback, comments, people who want to collaborate. Um, yeah, it was so lovely to meet both. It was really lovely to meet you as well. I hope we can meet in person once yeah. everything is I would, finished. Absolutely, I would, I would love that. All right, bye. Bye. bye.